Hey everyone, this is Jeanette. I just wanted to say a few words about this upcoming episode. This is the first in the series that we're doing on the unsung heroes of the piano world, otherwise known as piano technicians. The reason for this is I've found that, like many pianists, the actual nature of how the piano works of how the instrument is tuned, how to maintain the piano, and how to care for the piano is actually not that crystal clear. And I think that it's something that we're not as educated about as perhaps we should be. I know I crave a lot more information and I found it really educational to talk to these experts in their field. But in any case, they're really fun people to talk to. So the first person is Boomer Harold, and uh, his name is actually William, but he goes by Boomer. I've always known him that way. And he is the piano technician at Yale. I met him when I was doing my master's in piano performance there. He's just a really great guy to talk to. He has a wonderful perspective on life, and he knows a lot about the piano. And I found it really great, and I learned a lot. So I hope you will enjoy it and learn a lot too. Also, I apologize in advance for this. The audio quality is not that great. The adapter to my microphone actually just stopped working right when we were about to do the interview. And so I just had to use the poor computer microphones. And yeah, uh, don't buy knockoff Apple products. I'm really glad that you're agreeing to do this because it occurred to me that we don't have a piano tech at all. And I think that's pretty important. You're, you're lucky because this week, this guy came from Steinway, Germany and installed new hammers in one of our Hamburg pianos. Wow. And the great news there is I feel like a total know-nothing now. So we're starting at the very beginning again. Oh, wait, I'm not getting your and, uh, uh, full confident self? Well, no, it's it has nothing to do with confidence. It has to do with, uh, I learned a whole lot more this week that I didn't know. So, you know, if, if you can't find out that uh, you're doing it wrong, then you're not learning, right? It's true. I mean, you should feel like a dumb dumb all the time. Or not that you're doing it wrong, but that you're not taking as meticulous care as the guy from Germany, Ulrich, who was really, really cool. So that was the main difference. It was like much more meticulous than you've been used to seeing. He would take three days to do something I would take one day to do. Wow. Every step was just like, I was just like, oh my God, this is going so slowly. When is he going to get to the blah, blah, blah? And when is that, you know, and I was just kind of like typical sort of amped up American, I guess. I did. I always thought of myself as very meticulous, but this guy came along and I was like, wow. And it showed in the results. I mean, at the end of the week, I played the piano and it was just unbelievable how great it sounded. That's really interesting. It sounds like you're almost talking yeah. about a Japanese sushi chef, like the amount of care. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I spent most of the week just watching his hands. Huh. I mean, I would interrupt him with a question now and then, but mostly, I, I mean, I knew what he was doing. He wasn't slower than me. He just t took more time with everything. To make sure it was right? So like... Yeah, so if I would usually file a hammer with like a sandpaper stick with like 60 grade and I would just do that and then I would finish it with like 400 grade paper, he was like, he'd start at the bottom of the hammer and he'd shape it and shape it and he'd get a basic shape and then he would needle the hammer and then he'd file off the needle marks huh. and then he'd test it again 
And then in his, you know, he was using this like 2000 paper. So he was just skimming off tiny little bits of felt off the hammer at a time. Oh. Whereas I, you know, he started with a rough thing, but in the end, he was just skimming off little tiny bits at a time and shaping the hammer and shaping the hammer to this beautiful point that went straight down the strike line. And it was wonderful to watch him. I mean, at the end of the week, after watching his hands for five days, I was like doing the dishes differently. You know, I was like, everything I did was like, not even just to watch him doing the piano technical work, but also, I don't know, just the way he would cap a bottle and put it back in his bag. It was such attentiveness and care that I was just like, well, I've got to wake up, you know, is basically what I was thinking a lot of the time. And it was a fun thing to think. It's nice to wake up a little bit every now and again. Right. Every movement had meaning, like every movement was thought about. Yeah, it was like watching Peter Frankel play piano. You know? <laughs> I mean, you, And the problem with watching a guy like him or like Claude Frank, I, I would watch him play and I would think, I think I could do that, you know, and then you'd go to do it and it would be like wait this is a black page i can't play this yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah it's gonna take me a lot of practice but what was his name again his name was uh, ulrich gerhardt and is this the same hamburg steinway that i had played on you know it is the same hamburg Yay! steinway but we we bought a new one and that's oh, now okay. on stage it is the same um hamburg and this one moved into the new uh, orchestra rehearsal room in the new Adams Center. Have you heard about oh, this building? Yes, I saw that video. I think maybe you might have posted it or some old Yale people had posted it. Yeah, it wasn't me. It wasn't you? Okay. But it was It was just a beautiful, beautiful building and they have this big yeah. orchestra rehearsal room. Giant. Really, it's like two stories tall inside. And the old Hamburg went in there. So the old Hamburg now has new hammers and it sounds fantastic. It just sounds so beautiful. So It was always great. I love that instrument. It, it, it's so much better now. I can't even describe to you how much better it is. So if you liked well, it then, you would love it now. How about that? <laughs> so wait, so you must have come armed with some questions for me. I feel like I kind of just jumped in with No, no, week. no. This is great. I just wanted to first introduce you. I have to do the official thing, right? Like you are, and I didn't realize you're called the piano curator. I thought you were just the head of the That's piano. That's Yale. Okay, okay, so what... Yeah, they'll, Yale can tart up anything. They can take any <laughs> position and turn it into something that sounds so amazing. But I'm, So I'm you are technician. the piano curator. Okay. Yeah, I'm a um, curator. They call us curators at Yale, but I'm a piano technician. I'm an in-house technician. Right, um, and you've been there for 20 years? I, yeah, this uh, next month it'll be 20 years if I make and it. And then um, <laughs> if you make it, was it hard initially? I've had my ups and downs there, um, like any job. Um, right. Mostly, a lot of it is my own mind. That's all of our problems. Yeah, right? well, you get caught in an imposter syndrome, and you start to think that way for a couple of weeks, and then you start to believe it, and then you have to just sort of work your way out of it. Right. The busier I am, the less I'm worried about imposter syndrome, you know. Does Yale keep you like busy? Anything. It seems like it should. There's oh, well, so they many do, yeah. There. Oh, absolutely. Very busy, but... You know, there's there's busy times and not so busy times, you know. Like April is crazy. Oh, yeah. Everyone's the same. August is crazy. Wait, why is August crazy? School's opening in a month. Oh. Yeah. When you get there, everything okay. sounds great. But uh, <laughs> it, it, we've been working since August 1st to make it like that, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, um, one thing I didn't realize until I became the only pianist where I work right now mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that um, I took a lot for granted. I mean, people at Yale, I don't think they know how lucky they are 
because the instruments there are pretty amazing. And it's just like, oh, they're magically in tune every day. Like, it's just... I was just talking to somebody today about that very thing. So my question for you, yeah. I have many questions for you, but uh, one of them okay. is, why do pianists not know how to tune their instruments? Like, why is it a separate... It's like the only instrument that is separate. All right. Way. So a piano is not like a guitar or a violin. Right. Um, it's just not. It's, you know, a concert Steinway has 242 strings. So just the sheer volume of what has to be done, if you're going to touch every single tuning pin, for an experienced technician, it takes an hour and a half, which you would right. be better spending practicing, you know? I mean, it's sort of, no, I should say there are pianists who have learned to tune, but, you know, like everything else, it takes so many hours before you're adept at something. That's first of all. That's just, that's just a base level. Why don't they do it? Because it's just so much work just to learn how to do it. I mean... Right. The first time I tuned a piano, it took me six hours. It took years before I was just comfortable with what I was doing. Years. And that's to start with. And one of the reasons it takes so long is my second point, which is that piano tuning is also nothing like tuning guitars or string instruments because piano strings are made out of very stiff steel wire. And the wire is so stiff that it has inharmonicities. That's a, that is an actual word. And inharmonicity means that the harmonics of the string are not following any kind of Pythagorean mathematics whatsoever. So um, as when you play a piano string, or if you play any string, you get a strong fundamental right away. And then you'll get the first partial, which you can't really mm -hmm. hear that well because it's the same note. It's an octave higher. And then you'll, you'll start to hear the fifth, and then you'll hear the next octave, and then you'll hear something that's very faint at that point, but it's something that sounds sort of like a third. And then you'll get the next fifth, and then you'll get so on and so forth. And that's all happening as the, as the sound is dying huh. down. Because a piano string is not bowed. It's, it's mm -hmm. got an envelope with an attack, some sustain if you're lucky, and then it, it decays. So all those harmonics are coming as the string is going back to rest. Okay, so what's happening with a piano string is it's so stiff that it doesn't go to rest all at once. It goes from the ends to the middle. So like, oh, the, at, so down by the bridge and up oh, by the, okay, you know, okay. closer to the tuning pins, it sort of shuts down there first. And so what's happening is as it's dying down, the effect of singing length of the string is getting shorter and shorter. It, it's very subtle. So as it's decaying, like the, the, the part that's vibrating is getting shorter and shorter. And that means that those partials are now getting higher and higher. Because if you have a shorter string, you have a higher note, right? So, so why is this important? It's important because when you're going to tune pianos, a lot of the time you're actually... No piano is ever really in tune, first of all, because of the tempered scale. But then the other problem is just the octaves across the keyboard are all sort of out of tune with each other too, because for something to actually sound in tune up here, it has to be a little bit sharp of the harmonic down here. And a lot of tuners hear this or they read about it and they think, oh, we have to do stretch tunings. And there are such things as stretched tuning. And what ends up happening is, you know, they tune it so sharp that at the top of the piano, it's like half steps off and it sounds awful. And the point is it's supposed to sound yeah. good. And the other problem with pianos tuning their own pianos is that with all this work, all these tuning pins, 
Um, there's also the matter of uh, the tuning pins are set in wood and you have to make sure that each note you're tuning is stable before you move on to the next one. And it's a, it's a tricky thing that you can only feel. You, right. you can kind of feel it and if you're, it, you know, I actually will use, I didn't used to use visual aids, but um, the technology now is so amazing that I have this thing on my phone it's a tuning app and it's like a thousand dollar tuning app oh, really? and it yeah and it actually will listen to the note and analyze it and make predictions about where it's going to go and you can tune the note and it might sound a little out of tune but by the time you get to the top of the piano it's like bang on and that helps with stability because by that time awesome. it's stable it's shaken itself out and it's stretched itself out a little so there's a lot of that kind of stuff yeah, I mean, it's kind of a rhetorical question simply because we pianists understand that the amount of work it takes to tune an instrument is a lifetime kind of deal, whereas um, learning to tune your own right. instrument when it has four strings is very different. Um, but I get asked this question by people, like, why do we need a tuner? <laughs> so pianists cannot, okay, so the short answer is pianists cannot tune pianos for the same reason that most piano tuners can't play the Gaspard. It takes too many hours, okay? It just takes too many hours to learn how to do it. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to explain that, but it's like... There are pianists who have dedicated themselves and learned how to tune, and they, they can do a pretty good job. Well, that's the thing I was wondering is that, do you think we pianists have been raised in a bubble? Like, maybe we could have benefited from some piano tech classes uh, in undergrad and... Well, the problem is, is that in order to learn this stuff, like, the best way to learn it is to do it for, like... 40 or 50 hours a week like it's your job for two right, years right. and like you know you can teach a piano tuning class once or twice a week for one semester mm -hmm. and by the end of the semester you might be able to tune a temperament or right. you might be able to get the unisons in tune and you know that's a useful thing if you're a pianist you don't want to call the piano tuner if you've got two unisons out of tune and you know how to like yeah get them back in tune i mean that's I mean, that's, yeah. that's my goal mm -hmm. right now is to learn how to do just that. Touch up. Just because notes get fuzzy yeah. and I just want to like be able to touch up. The other thing about piano technical work is that, you know, that's just the tuning, you know, getting the action regulated and getting the tone right. regulation, you know, those, this, the voicing and stuff. That's a whole nother issue. Right. Because we have a separate person who does the voicing. Oh, yeah. Then the, the tuner. Yeah, and so I'm wondering, awesome. like, do you guys specialize off in this way? Or... Well, I mean, I can't do that at Yale. I mean, I kind of am obliged. I mean, this was one of the great things about having this guy, Yuli, come this week, was right. I was, like, really saw how he shaped hammers. I was like, okay, I can do that if I take mm -hmm. the time and just... It, it's really funny. It's sort of like um, I'm starting at square one again, which is nice, you know. Right. I, I'm not a beginner, but I have a beginner's mentality. You have to say, okay, everything I've been doing, while not wrong, could be a lot better. So let's just call right. it wrong, and then I can start, you know, the work. Well, I mean, that's great because you're not going on automatic pilot. Oh, I, I've definitely had times where I'm just like phoning it in, let's say. And also busy times, it's like, you know, the joke is, you know, how do you know when a piano's attuned? Because it's seven o'clock and the doors are opening. <laughs> it's like, it's done. I, I don't have any more time. I've run out of time. So it's got to be, it's as good as it's going to be by seven o'clock, you know? And sometimes they're like, can we just have a little more time with our dress rehearsals? And the next thing you know, you have 45 minutes to do a concert tuning. And it's like, you're not phoning it in, but yeah. you're not 
taking great care with every single solitary string either. You're just saying, okay, that's good enough for now. That's good enough for now. That's good. Let's just get this thing finished. Because everything should sound reasonably good, you know. If they play that C sharp, two above middle C, it shouldn't be going. It should sound like a song. So. Okay. Before I go on, we know you've worked at Yale for 20 years. Where were you before that? And also, did you go to school for this? I did not. Most people I meet now have gone to schools. Mostly, um, the big school in America is the North Bennett Street School in Boston. And both of my colleagues at Yale went there. Brian? Uh, Brian and now this guy, Rob. We have a third tuner now, thank God. Um, oh, okay. He wasn't listed as a... No, no, he just started a year ago. And that was, okay. that was a result of some conversations I was having with the administration about why the pianos sounded the way they did was because we were swamped with work. Can I ask, how many pianos are you in charge of? At the School of Music alone, there's 125. Most of them are Steinway Grands. We have about 15 upright pianos, most of which are Boston pianos. Right. That's just the School of Music. Then the Department of Music has another 30 pianos. And then the university at large, there's just another 100 pianos out there. But, right, kind of But it's not, yeah, but our rounds, so to speak, are in the School of Music. Like we are regularly cycling through all those pianos to keep them sounding okay. And then the department gets tunings once a semester, at the beginning of the semester, and then we go over there if we have requests. So if they're like, well, we have somebody coming in next week, can somebody go over and tune this piano? I say, sure. And the colleges are all requests. We don't seek work at the colleges. Right. But if they say, we need some piano tuning done, when can you do it? I usually say, yeah, the week after next, you know, we'll come over and deal with it. So you actually are the whole university. It's not just the School of Music. Which yeah, I we, yeah. And the thing is that the rest of the university, like not the department, but the, the colleges and by colleges at Yale, what we're talking about is um, dormitories. The re right. They're residential colleges. That's what they call it. It's just another tarted up phrase like piano curator. So the <laughs> residential colleges, they have to pay the School of Music for our time. So if I go over and do... 10 tunings, it's $125 a tuning for them. It's, it's cheap by market rates, but, you know, they have to pay the School of Music. Because so you're owned by the School of Music. Oh, yes, we are. We're owned. Yeah, we're totally owned. <laughs> yeah, I'm owned. Wait, so that's crazy. That's crazy. You just listed, like, close to 200 pianos that yeah. you guys yeah, are basically in charge of. Yeah, it's about 200 pianos. 200 pianos, 125 which are top priority. And do you have to tune them every day? Because people practice on them all the time, right? Yeah, but there's 125 pianos. I can't tune 125. I mean, I can't even right. do a third of that one day. So the, the, the way it works at Yale is they get tuned before every concert. They get tuned before every recording session. The piano studios get tuned once a week, no matter what kind of condition they happen to be in. We just go over there once a week and tune them because that way they're sounding pretty good most of the time. You know, maybe by the end of the week, there's a few unisons and octaves out, you know, here and there, but it doesn't sound awful. The classrooms get tuned. If there's a classroom that piano seminar meets in once a week, that gets tuned once a week. So like mm -hmm. piano seminars on Wednesday afternoon. So I go in Wednesday morning and tune those pianos. 
the other classrooms, it it's probably been Wednesday since um, 1894, you know, who knows. Things at Yale change very slowly. <laughs> so the rest of the classrooms get tuned once every other week or something like that. Classrooms are public pianos, they get used a lot, they get used for chamber music rehearsals. And then, um, then you have all the other studios, you know, the piano studios, I, I like, there's a lot, there's 13 piano studio pianos in total. We have Boris Berman, uh, Peter Frankel, Hung Kwan Chen, Melvin Chen. They all have two pianos in their studios. That's eight. And then Dean Blocker has a studio now. He has two pianos in that. He has Claude Frank's old studio. Oh, okay. In the second floor. So that's 10. And then you have Elizabeth Pariso. Oh, Wei Yi Yang has two pianos. Right. Oh, Wei Yi and... Yang. So, so there's just, yeah, it's doubled up all over the place. And Pariso's got a piano. And right. I kind of, I, mean, I try to tune Michael Friedman's piano every couple of weeks because he's a friend of mine and I give him the right. piano professor treatment because he's a friend of mine and I don't want him to have to ask. See, we split up the piano so one person takes care of these studios and what, I think that's an important component. Now that we have three tuners, we can do that. And that's really a good thing because tuners are all, they all have different styles mm -hmm. or they have different ways of doing things. They hear things differently. They just, it's, everything's a little different. And you try to get it as close to orthodox as possible. But if one guy comes in on Tuesday and another guy comes in on Friday or the following Tuesday, he's going to put it his way. And so the thing kind of gets whipsawed around if you have more than one person working sense. on it. What's it like in chamber music? Do you, like if, if you got the mumps or something and couldn't play a concert, but it was a sort of a war horse. The mumps. Who gets the I, mumps I, anymore? It's the first thing that came to my 32. mind, okay? Look at it. <laughs> I, I just wanted to get to the point. I didn't want to spend my time thinking yeah, of the yeah. perfect disease, but that was the first thing that popped it's in my head. It's just the cutest sounding disease, too. Okay, suppose you just, I don't know, you got whatever. No, no, no. let's go yeah, with the mumps. So you got the mumps. Or the muggles. You, mumps is funny, too. Come on, you know that. You know what's funny. It's the cutest so, one. So you get the yeah. mumps, and you can't play the piano, and um, but it's like a war horse. It's like a, I don't know. Archduke Trio or something. Can somebody else just step in and take care of it with a little well, rehearsal? Right? We just had that situation, actually. Our violist broke her arm. Oh, there you go. So we had to scramble to find a substitute violist for the whole summer because it takes nine weeks for our arm to heal. And we had all this, like, you know, big Brahms, Borey, Dvorak. It was all programmed already. We couldn't change it. And you had, you had rehearsed it all. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, kind of. And we knew her. Well, I mean, we just... We play 50-plus concerts a year. We know each other's playing really sure. well now. And it's just the comfort, like yeah. her sound and everything. And her timing. It's just very... Yeah. So we had a series of substitutes. And like there are very good violists who came in to play for us. But everyone was very different. It was interesting because we adjusted to different ways of, of playing. But it, I was very happy when Evelyn came back. Yeah, your team. Yeah, yeah, you have brainwave things that you sync up with each other and stuff. I believe in that. I believe that, like, that you can get brainwave synced up like that. I think it's definitely possible. You mean, possible. Like, like, menstrual cycle? Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I think I that bra I brains have waves and waves. Every wave is like every other wave. So if you have brain waves, why couldn't they sync up like sound waves or something else, you know? I mean, I think it's true if you work with people for yeah. a while on like a very close level, you are definitely will think like them. You will anticipate what they'll say. You'll anticipate how they think. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of times where I was kind of craving Evelyn's timings and Evelyn's right. sounds. Because you had adapted to it. Because you had adapted to each other. This is my point about Already, the brainwaves. Yeah. You kind of adapt to each other's sense of timing. Yeah. and It's true. It's, it's probably the most true in things like chamber music because you have to... 
into it mm -hmm. a lot and i think communication is so important if you can do it so, without a lot of talk yeah, anyway. it's good <laughs> oh we don't talk yeah this is yeah, the that's, other great that's thing a good is... thing yeah so anyway so to have one person working on this um on boris berman's pianos and have somebody else working on peter's pianos it also makes it easier for the artists if they're like you know where's boomer he's right. got to take care of this which if i'm doing it once a week thank god i mean i really have i've gotten zero requests from peter in the last year since we started doing this because i'm able to get in there once a week and it just he sits down and plays and it sounds right, right. fine and i've taken care of it and that's the goal the goal is to have people not even know that i'm existing no seriously <laughs> well then you have what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast was that we just take you guys for granted like we just kind of think they magically appear Sounding that's good, yeah. Without well, that, knowing from the, the, amount from of the musician's perspective, I can appreciate that. From the tuner's perspective, I'm probably not going to get a lot of positive feedback. So the only feedback I'm going to get is, "What's wrong with this note? What's wrong with that? Why is this feel this way?" Blah 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 blah. blah. It's always something bad. So if they sit down and everything works well, they're not like. They're not thinking about me. They're thinking about the Brahms or whatever. Because that's like an assumed status quo. Is that yeah? It's, sound it's great. like it's like giving it's like giving an artist a blank canvas. It's like it's not a cover with schmutz. It's not like stretched wrong. I didn't develop an appreciation for how well the pianos were maintained at Yale until I got away mm -hmm. from it. And you weren't a complainer. Well, I mean, why would I complain? I ne it never occurred to me to complain. Well, we get complainers, and one of the real I was just talking to a student about this today. He wasn't a pianist. He was a drum student. I've been taking drum lessons. Is my Ooh. yeah, it's another part of my beginner's mind thing. But um, I love uh -huh. I love my drum lessons. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. But uh, never mind that. <laughs> so I was talking to this drummer, and he was talking about the pianos. We were talking about that. I said, yeah, you know, there's a lot of pianists that come, and they throw their weight around. They 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 sort of hear how Boris Berman talks to us, and they feel like they should be able to talk to us that way. So they find all these Wait, things students? wrong, and they do all this stuff, and they're always complaining about the pianos, complaining about the pianos. And then they leave Yale, and then they come back for some reason. Yeah. And they're yeah. like, I am so sorry that I complained <laughs> to you. So I must have, I'm so sorry I made your life a living hell over the pianos because oh. it's so much worse out there than it is here. And I'm like, yeah, I know, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's are, amusing you live at this for those point. moments? When it's such a thankless job, it sounds like. It can be, yeah. But I get well, paid. Okay. I get paid. I get a thank you note once a week. Shows up in, in my bank account. Yeah. Right, right. Um, well, okay. So to go back to sort of um, what I was trying to hint at is that when I looked you up, I saw that you were majoring in composition and physics. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I didn't know that, uh -huh. given your profession. So yeah, it, it was like, perfect for what I do. I mean, you know. Right. I, I got interested in this in the first place because I got out of college. And there was this job that was advertised in the paper at Somer Pianos, S-O-H-M-E-R. They used to be made in New York, and they moved out to Connecticut, Ivoryton, Connecticut. And I was like having lunch with my mother, having just graduated from college, and didn't know what I was going to do. And I saw this ad, and I answered it, and I worked in a factory for a year. And I loved it because I did study physics uh -huh. and I did study music composition. And right. it was the perfect blend of the two things, of the art and the science. Right. And one of the things I did in physics was holography, which I don't know if you know much I about holography. No, I don't even know. Well, so holography is creating 3D images. So like 
you know, that little thing on your credit card that like it looks like a dove oh, or something, you know, that, that stuff. That's okay. And, okay. But there are yeah. different kinds of holograms. And what holograms are is it's a sort of a type of photography. You're actually using film, but you're, you're not just recording light rays. You're recording um, interference patterns between light waves. So what you do is with holography is you, you shine a laser on an object. You, you diffuse the, the ray with um, lenses. So a laser is a very coherent, focused thing. And you diffuse it with lenses and light something up with coherent laser light. And then that reflects off of that and then hits this film. There's no lens between the film and the object. Mm. And then you, you actually have split the ray at one point and you also shine the rest of the light on the same film without reflecting off any objects. It goes direct onto the film. Okay. And what the film records is the interference pattern between the object beam and the reference beam. And so that is how it's able to, you can like see all the sides of something. You, you can see a 3D image because it's just scattering the light off. So it's, it's like it's shining, you, you're getting this light and this light and this light and this light and all this light. But it's the reference beam that's recording that and solidifying it on the film. I know it might sound like gobbledygook. No, no, no. And what happens is when you want to, you, you develop the film and then you shine the reference light on it and you see the object even though the object isn't there. Right, Because right. it's recorded an interference pattern and it does that. Now, the reason it works is that laser light is coherent. In other words, there's one wavelength. Okay. Like white light is all the wavelengths. Right. It's like everything from purple to red. This is just one wavelength of light. It's coherent. Okay? okay, so that's how that's how it's able to record such precise interference patterns. I see. In music, you have interference patterns. If right. a note is out of tune, you hear it like going wow, 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 wow as it goes, and and that's you're hearing two different sources of waves, mm -hmm. and they're vi the strings are vibrating. But if one is vibrating just a little bit out of sync. Yeah. It's going to cancel itself out, and it's going to enhance the sound. So the point of all this is that I was really studying all this laser light stuff for a year. And then when I got out of school and I was listening to pianos and starting to learn how to tune, it was just fascinating to me because you can hear the waves, yeah. really hear the waves when you're tuning something in and out of tune. You really hear the interference of periodicity. That concept was already familiar to you. Yeah, so when they started describing what's happening when two notes were out of tune, I was like, okay. You know, I mean, that was, it took that much understanding, really. Right. But, but the nice <laughs> okay. thing about piano work is it's like 19th century physics. It's like pre-Einsteinian physics. It's totally mechanical. You know, it's just physical stuff in space. It's like the first five chapters of your physics book. Well, okay, so it seems to be kind of a far jump to just go from working at a piano company from mm -hmm. not having, like, have you had any experience doing? I, did, I didn't, just, I never learned to play the guitar because I did, couldn't figure out how to tune them. I didn't know anything <laughs> about tuning at all. So it was really an impulse of just, I'm going to get this job. Yeah, it was either that or I'd have to go, you know, learn currency trading on Wall Street like my mother wanted me to do, and I didn't want to have to do that. I didn't oh, want to be so a banker. Oh, so it was a reaction kind of move. Yeah, it was a negative goal. It was like, just keep me out of the banks. And also I had this, I was this leftist worker bee, you know, I was like, oh, right, right. I was had my subscription to the nation, and I was going to go work in a factory, and I had this like working class hero shtick that I was doing. But anyway, it was, it, 
it served me in the end. I, and I got that job and I, I worked there for a year and then I left there and I, I went to New York and mm -hmm. I worked um, for this outfit called AC Pianocraft, which is still in New York, but they were, they were down in Soho when I worked there and that was awesome. Um, yeah, you lived in Soho? No, 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 oh. no. I lived in Williamsburg in 1985. It was like... Oh, before I got judged. Nobody would come visit me there. I was the only person I knew out there. So I took this train into work and blah, blah, blah. But that was a, a high-end rebuilder, though. These were old Steinway guys who started a rebuilding company in like 1966. So it had been around for about 20 years by the time I got there. And I went in there and the guy who owned it was named Ted Kostakis and he was an old Steinway craftsman. And I, I went in there with a resume and he like looked at it, kind of tossed it on the bench and said, here, show me how you hold a pair of pliers. And I was opening and closing a pair of pliers with my hands and he was just like, you don't even know how to hold a pair <laughs> of pliers, do you? And I'm like, shaking my damn I was like, I guess not. <laughs> you know, I didn't know anything. Right. I didn't know anything about I mean, I knew how to change a tire. I, I had some tools experience. I definitely had some experience with tools, but not the kind of fine tools that we're talking about in the piano technical trade. You right. Know? There was just a lot of handwork that had to be learned. And it was a great place to work because they were tearing apart old Steinways and Mason and Hamlins and Chickerings and Busendorfers and Becksteins. And it was all different kinds of pianos. And so I got to see how all these different pianos were kind of built originally right you know? and you had to and, and every piano is its own pattern you know what i mean right. so like you cannot just rebuild a piano and take a soundboard off a shelf and throw it in the piano that soundboard has right. to be crafted for that rim precisely and that plate Unless it was yamaha right because aren't yamaha's factory produced yeah they are and there's more consistency to their product but you still would never like take you would you would all if you were rebuilding a, a yamaha you would always make the soundboard by hand if it, if you if you wanted to yeah. sing you could you could throw one yeah. in it would probably sound okay but so um i just finished this book which i was going to ask you what you thought of mm. just because um assuming was talking I read about it. a lot of this it was the romance on three legs <laughs> the glenn gould search for the perfect piano oh i don't know that book do you have a copy of it oh, there? I have an audiobook. Do you listen to audiobooks? Oh, I could. I could send it to you on audiobook. Great. I'll do that. Kind of just, it's told a lot from the piano technician's point of view because they were just trying to go with his whims and trying to make him a perfect piano or just try to make the Who? piano that Glenn he Gould? picked. Gould? To make yeah. it the piano of his dreams. But what he wanted essentially was a harpsichord in piano form. Like he just yeah. wanted something that yeah. light. And that, that led to some problems actually because... When I was growing up, we had his recording of the Bach Conventions. And that's what I listened to growing up was his recording of Bach Conventions. Then I started to do piano technical work, and I can't listen to it anymore because there are certain things on that album that are so obviously wrong that yeah. they're causing problems with the, like the, the G above middle C is what we call mandolining. It's going on the, on the uh -huh. string. It's not getting checked properly because he had the guy cranking down so tight on the action to make it harpsichord-like. No. I love Glenn Gould, by the way. I'm a big fan of Glenn Gould. I love, I was obsessed with Glenn Gould, but you I can't listen to that record thing. anymore. Yeah. Because I mean, it was just yeah. like constantly the battle against what they were telling him was possible and what he wanted. And it was just, there was no meeting in the middle, really. I know. The I, downside I, of visionary um, genius right i'd be really curious to see what you thought of it because it talked a lot about like the little minutiae of the tech 
for like mm. somebody like me, it seemed like I understood more. Maybe to yeah. you, it could have been all wrong. So I'm laughing. Did you ever see this thing called Thirty Two Short Films about Glenn Gould? They referenced that. It's uh, I haven't. You seen never that saw it? No. It's a very interesting movie because it. It's got this actor playing Glenn Gould. Right, because he was dead already. Yeah, there's this guy, some yeah. Canadian actor or something, playing Glenn Gould. And it was a really interesting movie. But interspersed in the movie, they were actually interviewing people who knew him, sort right. of Ken Burns style, you know? Yeah. And one of them was his piano technician. And I, I, I laughed out loud because he was, I have these people that call me up there like, I need something done the day after tomorrow. Glenn Gould always gave me three months notice when he needed something. And I just laughed and laughed because, of course, that's all the piano technician cares about is whether right. they're giving him enough time to do the job or whether they need it on an emergency or something. You know, it's like, it's like, <laughs> it was just such a sort of mundane concern <laughs> that is so familiar to me. You know, <laughs> there were like, people are like, so yeah, I have a recording session on Thursday. And I'm like, yeah, great. Why didn't you tell, you know, or they'll say, um, uh, we need a harpsichord moved on Thursday. And I'm like, how long have you known about this concert? Couldn't you have like arranged the move like when you first started practicing? Well, that... and, but it's like one of those stupid, mundane like things. It was just, I was like, that's a brother technician, you know? <laughs> so funny. He didn't, he, he didn't care about what the guy wanted. Just as long as he wanted it, you know, with a reasonable amount of lead time. It was very funny. It kind of points to the bigger problem is that we don't give you guys professional courtesy. It like doesn't occur to us. Well, yeah. Until you're about to play the concert. Until you're like, oh shit, like I forgot to do this. Okay, so I'm still kind of boggled by this. Like you just walked into the store and you're like, hey... I want to work on pianos, and he just took you on? Oh, I was in love with the... I mean, once I started working on pianos, I love that it was just handwork. Right. It was just something... It's like my father was a dentist. He worked with his hands all day. Mm, you know, my great-grandfather was a mechanic. He worked with... It's like there's something about my genetic makeup that, like, I need to be doing something with my hands. And I wasn't a good enough artist to be a pianist, so this was a good way for me to just, like work with pianos every day and work with my hands and it was nice and I sort of had the whole fetishized tools and all this other stuff you know that that, that happens well you say you're not a pianist but you actually are a pianist aren't you a well I pianist? am because I've been around pianos all the time and I'm lucky to be playing t tuned pianos all the time but I'm not a very studious pianist, you know. Well, you're not a quote-unquote classical pianist, but I remember no, you playing some jazz. Like, you know a right, lot about which that. is great, and it's really fun, and I don't have to have my music with me, and I can make things up as I go along. Right. But the, one of the problems that all jazz and blues musicians have, whether they know it or not, is uh, they get lazy. They just play the same old chops all the time, and I've been guilty of that. And people are like, wow, that was beautiful. It's like, I've been playing it that way for 30 years. It's just so boring to me. You know, and it's just sort of like, yeah. I'm just reaching for whatever's easy. And that's not good. Because then my time gets sloppy. That's one of the reasons I started playing drums. Because oh. I was really concerned about my time. Playing the drums is great because I'm playing these really simple, they're syncopated figures, but they're, they're not complicated. Mm -hmm. But I can see like on some of these figures, it's like, wow, there's a whole lot of fuck up between beats two and four here, you know? And it's like, I've really got to get my off beats in order here. They're not coming where they're supposed to, you know? They're a little yeah. late or a little early. 
and it doesn't sound good. Right. You know? So if I sat and played drums for an hour and then I go start practicing piano, my piano playing is much different than it would be if I wasn't playing the drums. Because I've just been working on time only for an hour, you know, and then I get to the piano, I'm like, all of a sudden I'm hearing things like, oh my God, that is so fucking sloppy. I've got to <laughs> tighten it up a little here. And not in a good way, you know, right. not not relaxed. It's just right. lazy, you know. It's kind of awesome, though. I mean, I think this is a lesson all pianists could learn is that maybe we should all take drum lessons or some sort of percussion. Piano is a percussion instrument. It's true. I mean, in most big contemporary music, we're considered a percussion section. We do the rhythm. Yeah. We do the ostinato. For all the sort of singing tone school of piano uh, playing, Bartok. it really is just mallets on strings yeah. instead of, you know rosewood bars so anyway so i started working there and then i went to work for this rebuilding company and i worked there for four years uh, rebuilding steinways and chickerings and mason and hamlin's but mostly steinways i would say when i was there it was probably 80 percent steinway grands from all eras we had pianos the piano in my living room is an 1877 steinway and that was my piano growing up and i had it rebuilt by them after i left but there were a lot of old pianos like that but also modern pianos, old Mason and Hamlets, which I really came to love. Unfortunately, there's no money in it anymore. There's no money in pianos anymore, really. So like, it's hard enough to sell a Steinway, but selling a rebuilt Mason and Hamlin is like impossible now. But in those days, they had a value. People would buy them. There were people who were like Mason and Hamlin people. They had to have a Mason and Hamlin. I thought they were beautiful, beautiful pianos, some of them. Right. Uh, so I did a lot of that work. And then after that, I got engaged to be married. So naturally, I quit my job and went freelance. I did freelance piano tuning for nine years, just going from church to school to home, just doing whatever was out there. And I learned a lot. I did a lot of recording sessions and concerts, and I did a lot of home pianos. You know, it was paying the bills, but just... Then this job at Yale opened up, and I took it immediately because, <laughs> for the benefits, right. it was just a no-brainer. But also, it was great to just like drive to one place, park your car, work there all day, go home, and there's more work tomorrow. Like I never had to drum up work. My health insurance was paid. Yeah. They had benefits, like you wouldn't believe, paid time off. I never... Yeah, what is paid time off, right? No freelance musician knows what that means. Yeah, no, no, no. Freelancing. If your hands aren't moving, you're sinking. So you basically learned on the job and you developed... Yeah, I never went to skills. school. Yeah. I'm one of those. Was it sort of like an apprenticeship or was it like you, you were just an Yeah, it was. Well, working for the Greeks in, in New York was really like, okay, so working for Ted Kostakos was like, he would say, it's monkey see, monkey do. If I turn the screw this way, you turn the screw this way. If I do, if I do it standing in my head, you have to do it standing in your head. If I have a one foot up in the air while I'm doing it, you have to have one foot up in the air. His point was, no matter how ridiculous or whatever you see, you just have to do You have to watch my hands and do it exactly the way I do it. He said, you will develop your own style necessarily, but if you really watch my hands, you'll see how I do it. And I did, and I learned how he did it, and then eventually I was watching other people's hands too. He taught me how to watch a workman's hands and learn from that. And that, and that came like, what, 25 years later, and I've got uh, Ulrich Gerhard here, and I'm watching his hands. Okay, so that's how you ended up at Yale, because that was going to be my next question. How did you end up in jazz? Playing jazz? Yeah, like how did that... Oh, well, see, so when I was in college, I was actually physics major first. I was studying a lot. I went to Hampshire College, which is like hippy-dippy college. 
out in Amherst, Massachusetts, and oh, okay. you're able to design your own curriculum, and oh, it had a lot more freedom back then than it does now. But because we were able to design our own curriculum, I was able to like take five physics courses one semester. I just completely went immersion. Is that kind of your style? You just get obsessed with something, and then you just have yeah, to yeah, 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 yeah. I just I couldn't. I just didn't want to think about anything else. Yeah, you know how it is. Yeah. So uh, I kind of was doing that, and I was doing all this. I was studying mechanics, quantum physics, relativity, the holography. So I was doing all this, and while I was there, I had actually started out uh, playing classical music like every young person in America in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and my first piano teacher was actually Elizabeth Pariseau. She, she was in Guilford. She was an MM student when I started I taking lessons I did not know that. Her. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. She was my first piano teacher. She still asked me if I could play the Sailor Boogie. <laughs> yeah, she had me playing Clementi and all this stuff. And I played Inventions with her and blah, blah, blah. But then I kind of like dropped it. And then I was studying all this physics. And then in our on-campus apartment at Hampshire, there was this guy. God, I don't even remember his name. Anyway, he brought a piano into the apartment. Cool. You there? Yeah, I am. I just, I think my video is kind of frozen. So. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's fun. You're smiling. It's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he brought a piano into the apartment and I started doing this thing where I would put records on and try to play along with the records and just try to figure out, first of all, what key is the song in and what are the chords and. I just started learning how to play by ear. That's how they tell people who want to learn how to play jazz to do it. Yeah, put a record on, try to figure it out. And so I started doing that, and then I got really interested in that. Then I started getting obsessed with that. And at Hampshire at the time, we had this guy named Roland Wiggins. And Roland Wiggins was an educator and a musical theorist and a jazz player. And this guy, he had taught like Coltrane and McCoy Tyner and all these other people. But he was teaching a class at Hampshire on music, just how to think about music. So I started taking his classes and next thing I knew I was like taking jazz lessons from a guy named Art Matthews. Huh. And I was playing a lot of ragtime and blues and sort of simpler stuff for people who weren't really into it yet. I love ragtime. Yeah, I do too. So much fun to play. I still warm up with a maple leaf every now and again when I remember to. It's not easy um, either. Rag stuff is not that no. easy. No, the thing about ragtime is you, your left hand has to be so solid. Yeah, so I started playing all that stuff, and the next thing I knew, I was playing rock and roll and stuff like that, too. I just like songs. You just like songs. <laughs> yeah, I like playing songs, you know? I'm that kind of person. So um, I guess I should probably wrap up, but just a couple stupid questions I wanted to ask you. One of the things is that if you look on Yale's website, you'll see that you're William Harold, piano curator. Yeah, right. But you go by Boomer. So why? Yeah, that's my nickname. There's no interesting story. My parents nicknamed me Boomer when I was an infant, and... And I'm still so There's boomer. no reason behind that nickname? No, it's just, it's a dumb sort of preppy thing, I think. I don't know. They like just thought it would boomers? be cute to have a little kid named Boomer and they didn't think that he would grow up to be a person. I mean, a, you know, <laughs> an adult. Well, then why keep it? So, why did you keep that nickname? Oh, I just, I never, I never got rid of it and it's just stuck with me. And now even the dean calls me Boomer all the time. I had to look up what your name was 
because I've always <laughs> thought of you as Boomer. Right. Yeah. There's, there's something sort of nice about that. <laughs> it is. It's unique. I mean, I don't know anyone else that yeah. Well, no. Boomer. I mean, there's an anonymity about it. It's like, who is that guy? What is his real name? I've had people who've known me all my life. Like, I've known them since kindergarten. They're like, I just found out your name was William the other day. Is that right? Well, it's part so, of it very... also that you wanted to have a unique name in a way, like something that identified you. I not... must have. I don't know. I think I just, again, I was too lazy to try to learn how to answer to something else. <laughs> It's like once you call a dog Boomer for like seven years, he's just Boomer. He's not going to answer if you start calling him Willie. It's true. Yeah, so you're a creature. I'm kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, I'm like a dog. Okay, so one last question for you. If you could have a dinner party with three dead <laughs> artists, musicians, whatever, um, who would they be? Uh -huh. And also, what would you cook them? Who, who would I? Three dead artists? I don't know. Uh... They have to be dead, though. Yeah. Glenn Gould, I guess. I, I mean, we were talking about him earlier. He's, right. But I'm not sure if he'd be good dinner company. I've heard he's very entertaining, actually. Okay, so maybe Glenn Gould. Uh, James Booker. He was a New uh -huh. Orleans pianist. I think it would be very tough to keep him at the dinner table, though. And Oh, so Glenn Gould, I would make him uh, a Meunier. I have read that Glenn Gould is fastidious about what he eats. And... Um, mm -hmm. Really well, he would like the Solmonier, certainly. <laughs> I, I don't know, but it's like, it seemed like... If you're fastidious, I think Solmonier is a pretty safe bet. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he only likes boiled chicken breast or something. I think he was only referenced with eating crackers, which is kind of sad. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, he seems like a fuel and not a... Right. He doesn't seem like an Epicurean. I would probably make a jambalaya or a gumbo for uh, James Booker. And who would my third... Joni Mitchell. What would I make Joni Mitchell, though? I have this Southeast Asian lobster dish that I make. I would make that for Joni Mitchell. It's my favorite dish in the whole Southeast world. Southeast Asian lobster? Oh, it's fantastic. It's, a, it's like a Southeast Asian lobster dish. I serve it over coconut rice. It's fantastic. Oh, that sounds really It's a, good. something I do once or twice a year because it's so time and labor intensive, but it's so worth it. Well, that's your it's like, really good. celebratory dish. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. It's just really good dish. It's not just celebratory. It's something you would do to really impress somebody. Mm, I get it. Well, thank you for making the time to talk tonight. Is there anything that you want to sort of chill? Oh, um, well, speaking of Joni Mitchell, I'm working on a, we're working on a, um, with Jack V's. Do you remember that guy? Bass player, so ran the familiar. Kismet. So we have a little band of jazz musicians and we're working on playing one Joni Mitchell album from start to finish, and it's Hegira. Awesome. Oh, I have my piano. I'm selling a, a, a Steinway L, completely rebuilt. New soundboard, new pin block, new action parts, new everything. I took care of the action myself. It's all beautiful. It sounds great. And so if somebody wants to buy that, they can go to my website for my business, which is blackpearlpianos.com. Oh, that's great. And we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Well... That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and downloading. And we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get our show out there. And I hope you'll tune in next time.